Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and sign up for the Love Mondays newsletter. I've studied history's greatest creatives, and each Monday I share with you the very best lessons I've learned. It is a two-minute-a-week commitment, and it's free. Sign up at kadavy.net slash Mondays. Scott H. Young is best known for learning the entire MIT computer science curriculum on his own in only a year. He did it through ultra learning. It's a way of organizing your learning so each moment you spend learning is much more effective than it would be otherwise. If you're like me, you love to learn new things. Also, if you're like me, you'd also like to learn more in a shorter amount of time. In ultra learning, Scott shares how to break down learning projects into their component parts and how to choose the most effective ways of learning each of those individual parts. In this conversation, you're going to learn about how can meta-learning or planning your learning projects make the process more enjoyable and prevent burnout and procrastination. Learn why when you feel like you're learning more, you may actually be learning less. Which is right for you? Free recall? or repeated review. If you're like me, the term ultra-learning might sound a little bit exhausting. Learn how you can apply ultra-learning principles to even the most casual learning projects. You can use ultra-learning principles to learn a new language, learn to dance, or to get more bang for your career-building buck. Do you want to build a business as a solopreneur? Like mine, follow your curiosity, be in command of your time, live where you want, but... Do you struggle to stay motivated to do the work that you need to do to build that solopreneur business? I can help. The big challenge in working for yourself is getting yourself to do the work and getting yourself to do the right work. That's tough, especially if you're like me, if you're a curious person with hair trigger motivation. So if you ever wonder how it is that I manage to consistently crank out quality podcast episodes, blog posts, and books no matter what crazy stuff comes my way, I will teach you. I'm sharing my best self-motivation tips from over a decade as a solopreneur. It's in my upcoming webinar in late October. It's called Self-Motivation for Solopreneurs. It is absolutely free. And if you don't always get done as a solopreneur, everything you want to get done as a solopreneur, you do not want to miss this free webinar. Learn more and sign up at kadavy.net slash motivation. That's kadavy.net slash motivation. I cannot wait to see you there. Thank you so much for everybody who mentions my work on social media or on their blogs or on their podcasts. On Instagram, thank you to at Alex and Books underscore for doing a giveaway of The Heart to Start. His followers went nuts for it. If you'd like to give away The Heart to Start to your audience, email me at david at canvy.net. Thank you also to at ICO Nick for sharing The Heart to Start to his stories and Nathan.Guitar for sharing on his stories his favorite quote from the Heart to Start chapter, Your Ego Fears Your Art. And in case you're curious, that quote is, when you start making your art, you are going to expose yourself to discomfort. You'll have to resist distractions to do the work. You'll have to struggle through doing the work that doesn't yet meet your standards. And you'll have to face criticism to make your work better. It's the ego's job to protect you from this discomfort. That's a great quote to be sharing, if I do say so myself. Thank you so much for that, Nathan Guitar. And on Twitter, at Martin Steller says, 
I realized that creating things was direly missing from my life. Not that it was all work and no play, but there was no real make time for the sake and joy of making. So I plucked some cane, cut a pen, and started playing around with walnut ink. So I'm playing at making things like this. It's fun. Then he quotes me, when you resist a step, it's still too big at Cadavy. And he shares a cool drawing that he made with this pen that he made himself and made the drawing in walnut ink. And also at David Cohen Comedy, in a thread with some other users says, occasionally I come across a writer in the nonfiction world who I enjoy reading for their own sake beyond what they have to say. I think you both might enjoy at Cadavy. Thank you for recommending my work, by the way. And at Kosher Jellyfish is replying to somebody on Twitter and says, you can try at Cadavy's Love Your Work podcast and Harley Christensen at Mischievous Mally shares a Love Mondays quote and says a bit of inspiration and motivation to get your week off to a great start. Thanks at Cadavy. Elsewhere, thank you to Al Chen. Al enjoyed my episode on the variable money value of time so much, he made a template for entering the hourly rate of your various mental states. I talk about the seven mental states and how some of them might be more valuable to you than others. And Al created the template and you can plan your schedule according to this template. It's so cool to see when people take a concept and run with it. Al made his template on Coda. You can check it out at cadavy.net slash Coda. Thank you also to Maverick's Thoughts for sharing my morning routine on the Medium article, How 10 Top Writers on Medium Start Their Day. It's always an honor to be included in those things. And when you share my work, you help me keep doing this work. That was a little long one. I know there were a lot of people sharing my work lately, which is really great. I try to give a return shout out to everyone. Uh, though with an update like that, things might start getting longer. Hopefully, I may have to start drawing a lottery or something. Anyway, here is Scott H. Young. I'm here with Scott H. Young, who is author of the book Ultra Learning. And this title really called out to me because I've learned a lot of things. I've been pretty intentional about learning about those things. I can't ever say that I've ever tried ultra learning something, but uh, what is it? that is special about ultra learning from your typical learning. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. So the idea of ultra learning was to talk about a type of process basically for getting better at things that we often don't think about when we think about learning. So when most people think about learning, they think about school. Obviously you go to school for many years of your life, maybe maybe even most of your life, if you're a little younger and you're listening to this, you've been in school and you've been studying. And so this is our dominant way of thinking about learning. And so the idea of ultra learning was to combine a kind of overlap of two things that tend not to overlap too often, but when they do, it can result in some pretty incredible stories. And so one of them is people who undertake kind of self-directed learning projects where they just decide that they want to get better at something or they want to learn something or they want to master something. And it's their own project. It's a personal kind of project that they want to pursue rather than, you know, just, well, I'm going to attend a class and some teacher is going to tell me what to do. The second is people who are obsessed with doing learning well, understanding how learning works, trying to make it more effective, really trying to get skills and master things 
rather than, you know, just playing with fun apps on your phone or doing whatever's most convenient. And the stories that I encountered of people who've done just incredible things, people who have, you know, started million dollar businesses. Um, uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, Nigel Richards, who uh, won the French Scrabble World Championship, even though he doesn't speak French. Um, people like <laughs> Diana Faisenfeld, who was a librarian, and she was sort of facing her job becoming obsolete and decided that she was going to learn uh, statistical programming and data visualization and basically 180 her career and make it so that she was indispensable. So I think there's a lot of relevance to our lives of using this kind of skill, but it's also something that, you know, tends not to get focused on. We often talk about, you know, either going back to school or, you know, you're doing some read a book occasionally. The ultra learning, I think, often gets neglected. Yeah. So I think that resonates with a lot of our listeners. We're all people who are very curious. We're always trying mm -hmm. to learn new things. I know that I've gone through a number of projects where I've been learning new things, but I haven't necessarily applied all these principles that I learned in the book. And so I'm excited for my next project. Now, one of the things that I found interesting that actually I, I was a little resistant to at first mm -hmm. was meta-learning. It's like first draw a map, come up with a plan for how you're going to learn before you actually learn. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think of that as like, I mean, does, does that kind of like ruin the fun of learning? Like what's, what's the purpose of coming up with some kind of a plan before you actually dive into to learning? It's so funny you say that because for me, it's totally the opposite uh, that I find that once you have some understanding of how the learning process breaks down, then some goal that, you know, is maybe kind of scary. Like you I have no idea how I'm going to learn this. I have no idea how I'm going to master it becomes something that oh, you know, if I just take this step by step, I'll eventually get to where I want to go. And so I've talked to people, you know, for all sorts of skills, whether it's their, you know, I was talking to one guy who is a non-technical founder of a startup and he's wanting to learn programming. And that's a super daunting thing if you're trying to do professional level programming and you don't know how to code. Or let's say you want to get better at public speaking. And it's sort of like, well, how do you get better at that? How do you get better at some skill which doesn't have a really easy list of criteria or a syllabus to follow. And so meta-learning is really just this process of trying to figure out how the thing you're trying to get good at works. And it, you're right that some of it happens beforehand. So I usually recommend doing some research and some planning beforehand, just because if you start a self-directed learning project, you maybe don't have the benefit of a school or a classroom telling you exactly what you need to do. So you need to figure out some of that before you even get started. But meta-learning also has this role even while you're doing something, because the more you kind of understand, well, I'm, I'm doing the learning, but I'm also thinking about the learning process, you can also make adjustments when you start to get stuck or, or when something is too difficult for you, or you, you can't sort of figure out how to get past a certain plateau or obstacle. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is beneficial about doing the meta-learning is that when you're trying to learn some new skill and it feels very nebulous. You feel like you're kind of swimming in the middle of the ocean. You don't know where any land is. Um, that Having that structure there can make you feel like you're making some kind of progress or is that the right idea? Yeah, I think the reason to have this kind of progress or this sort of more abstract view of what you're trying to do when you're learning is that it helps you get a sense of what is going to be difficult, 
what is, should be easy? What kind of approach should I take? What kind of tools should I use? So I talk about in the book, I've lots and lots of different sort of methods and tools that you can use to approach different kinds of learning problems. So for instance, if you are in a situation where you have to memorize a lot of things, which is not all learning tasks, but it is involved in some. If you are learning a new language, you have to remember thousands and thousands of words. If you are learning medicine, you have to know many, many body parts, all of their names, drug interactions, biochemistry, all sorts of different diseases and their epidemiology. All of these things involve a lot of memorization. Lawyers, various, various subjects where you'd have to do this. And so once you know, okay, there's going to be a lot of memorization, then you can start to think about, well, what sort of tools might I want to invest in to improve the act of memorizing these things. So that could be things like space repetition systems, mnemonics, these kind of specific tools. Now, these tools may not be that useful if your learning task doesn't involve that much memorization. If your goal is to become a painter, well, then these tools are not going to be super helpful for you. And so meta-learning, I mean, this is a fairly coarse-grained analysis because, you know, I think we would all understand that painting doesn't require flashcards. But the idea behind meta-learning is simply this, is that you just sort of get a sense of what is it going to be involved when you're learning it? What is the information you're going to need to have? What is the thing you're going to need to be able to do? And how do people typically learn this skill as well as what kinds of tools might be helpful? And as you start planning that out, you can already start to find ways to learn something a little bit more effectively or efficiently. Hmm. I guess I picture it as as like you know, how do I keep myself motivated throughout the process of even learning about the learning? Like you, you're, you're well known for doing the entire MIT uh, computer science curriculum in a year on your own. But from what I understand, you did quite a bit of meta learning before that project. Can you, are you just naturally interested in, um, learning about what you're going to have to learn? Were there were there any things that you did or thought about to keep yourself motivated throughout that process and, and to prevent yourself from, say, diving in and then pushing so hard that you burn out and you just decide that you're not going to do this? So you hit on a really good point. I think this is very important that I'm talking a little bit about the intellectual side of doing this kind of research, but I think it's also the emotional preparation that's super important too. Yeah. So I'll talk about, I'll talk about a different project because I think this one is maybe closer to what some people might actually be wanting to do. And so this was a project I did with a friend that we called The Year Without English. And we traveled for 12 months. We went to four countries to learn four different languages. We learned uh, Spanish in Spain, Portuguese in Brazil, uh, Mandarin Chinese in China, and uh, Mm. Korean in South Korea. And the method that we were using, which was something that, again, came about from a lot of experience, trial, error, and research, was the idea that we called the no English rule, which is that when we landed in the country, we wouldn't speak in English to each other or to anyone we'd meet, you know, barring some sort of, uh, you know, very minor exceptions. And this just means that basically you're doing a lot of practice. Now, the obvious problem with a technique like this, and I imagine many of the people listening right now are probably thinking this in their head is, wow, that sounds really difficult. I don't know whether I want to do that. And so the idea of the metal learning... (laughs) So it actually isn't it isn't nearly as bad as people think it is. Uh, it's it's very funny how how much this differs, like the practice in reality, um, especially in the European languages. But I think this is a very good point because a lot of what I'm talking about in this book is how you can really do some pretty incredible things with your mind and really get good at very important skills in a short period of time. But these things are going to be frustrating. They're going to be difficult. And so the meta-learning research, I think, is very important too because it's also sort of in the same way that an athlete might prepare for a competition or 
you know, if you were preparing for a test, you are sort of psychologically readying yourself. And so in the kind of, I don't know, maybe nine months leading up to, okay, we're going to do this. There was a lot of sort of mental preparation of like, okay, what's going to happen when we don't know what to say? Uh, What's going to happen when, you know, we need to do something and this person doesn't understand us? What's going to happen when we encounter someone who only speaks English and, and, you know, they don't speak the language that we're trying to learn and all these kind of scenarios and you start planning for it and preparing for it. And what started out is something, well, this is totally impossible, becomes something like, okay, maybe we can actually handle this. And then when you hit the ground, it's it's much easier to stick with those initial plans and much easier to persist through some of those initial obstacles and difficulties. So the same thing happened with the MIT challenge of really thinking about what it entailed to do this. So not only are you thinking about some of the difficulties, but you're also getting excited about the experience of, you know, being able to do something that you didn't think was possible before. So when we were in Spain, so I'll tell you the little like <laughs> the little outcome of this sort of process because right now I'm making it sound very dreary. We went to Spain and after about a month, we had friends, we were going on dates, we were going to parties, we were living our lives in Spanish. By then the three months, I mean, we were conversationally fluent. We were able to have discussions about everything with people. We were living our lives. It was totally easy and effortless. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't difficulties in the beginning, but it required that mental preparation and getting the foundation right. If we had just, Mm -hmm. you know, just decided, oh, let's just go and not speak English for a year and we just start, you know, start tomorrow. I don't know whether we would have been psychologically ready for some of those early obstacles and it would have probably broken down quite quickly. Well, this is the part where it would be tough for me, and maybe there's some mm-hmm. something that's inherent to you here that makes this uh, an easier thing for you to do, or maybe there's maybe there's some kind of a, a narrative fallacy going on here. But if I were to uh, have done a project like that, I s- probably wouldn't have decided nine months ahead of time that I am going to do that. It, like I would be very non-committal about it. I would kind of be like. Mm, let's see how it goes. And then maybe when I'm into it, I'll then decide because I just, I, 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 I would be afraid to make the commitment in advance or to say it out loud. Or, I mean, this reminds me of kind of like Chris Bailey, who, uh, who decided like, well, I'm going to do a year of uh, productivity uh, where I'm just going to experiment productivity for a year. And before <laughs> he even started, you know, he had a website up that was like yearproductivity.com and he had made the decision. So when it was nine months ahead of time, what was that point of decision like? Was there any dabbling and in like investigating and saying, okay, how feasible is this before you decided that you were going to do it? What did that look like? So I think you bring up a really good point. I have two kind of responses. So first I want to say that like my intention for people here is not that they necessarily take on projects of this scope. Like I'm, I was doing these projects a, because they're very, they were exciting for me, but also because, you know, I'm doing this sort of as a public project. It's totally okay to have a much, much smaller project that requires less meta learning research or less sort of planning and preparation. You could have a project where, you know what, I'm going to just do for, you know, half an hour a day for one month. I'm going to speak only in Spanish with my spouse and we're going to get a little bit better before our trip to Cancun. Like that's totally okay mm-hmm. as a project. What we're talking about here is the method being used. And the method requires a little bit of preparation and psychological readiness. But, you know, whether you do it for a year full time or whether you do it for 30 minutes a day is totally up to you. So Ah, I think that's totally okay. What I'll say is the second point, though, because you were talking about, like, how did you make this decision to do in nine months? 
Um, there wasn't a point that the decision came all at once. So originally the decision was I was going with this friend and he was talking about, well, I'm thinking about quitting my job and going back to get my master's. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. And he's like, well, I'd like to do some traveling. I've never done much traveling. I've always been studying and working. It'd be nice to take a little gap here. I'm like, well, you know, that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm sort of working online these days. So, you know, maybe we could do something together. And then we were talking about what kind of trip would we like to take? So, I mean, like, this is a conversation that's sort of taking place over months. Like at first, at first, the original trip was going to be uh, two months long and it was going to be a road trip throughout the U.S. So, I mean, it's not that these decisions have to come all at once. And then even when we were traveling and even when we decided we were going to learn languages, it took a little while for us to come to the idea of this you know, no English rule as sort of the guiding force of the project. It was sort of like, well, maybe we'll go to the la- those countries and learn a bit of the language. And, and for me, you know, again, this is, it sounds rather extreme, but part of the reason I was inclined to do it this way is that I had experienced going to a country and not doing this way and found it very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I was in uh, university, I went on exchange for a year in France, uh, studying business. And my classes were in English. Most of the people around me spoke in English. And um, I didn't know French beforehand. And so I was trying to learn, but it was very difficult because my entire environment reinforced me speaking in English. If I spoke in French, people were kind of like, eh, why are you speaking in French? Like, you can just speak in English. And I found it very frustrating. And it was, I think, uh, I, like about a year after or something, I went back to Paris for a couple of weeks. And I said, you know, at this point, I'd already been speaking French for a while, really trying to learn it for a long time. So I wasn't at zero, but I was saying, you know what, I'm going to try just to just speak in French in this little short trip. And it was like night and day. It was like, oh, I should have been doing this from the beginning. So I had that personal experience. And so when we're thinking about traveling and we're thinking about learning languages and we're thinking about doing this, then this idea of, you know, getting this sort of method or this approach to it, which is very strict, uh, was, was sort of in this process. So very unlike your friend, I'm not like the kind of person who just one day decides, oh, I'm going to spend a year doing this time to commit myself. It's very much a process of thinking about it and brainstorming and planning out. Now, the reason it's nine months is because my friend has to save up money, I have to plan for it. So we weren't going to do it right away. But if we were going to do something right away, it would probably be shorter, we might have, you know, as I said, like one of our ideas was that we were thinking of maybe just going to Korea for like one month. So like that could have been the project, it could have been Mm -hmm. probably different. And so I think uh, the right way to think about these processes is that some preparation is helpful. The longer project you're planning, the more preparation and thinking I think is important for the very reason you're talking about, that if you just decide in one second, I'm going to do a year long project, you're probably not going to stick to it. You know, if you're going to commit to something for a year, you really have to think that through. But on the other hand, if you want to commit to something that's half an hour a day for a month, um, it's, it's not super important to spend tons and tons of time, but you might still benefit from spending, you know, 45 minutes on Google, like clicking around a little bit to figure out what's the best way to start. Okay. So I, I can see here, and it's also, it's good, it's important to have a growth mindset about planning these projects is that, you know, maybe you start with some smaller projects and maybe you do a little documentation of those smaller projects and then eventually you have the skills then to do a well-planned ultra-learning project. Um, I also like this idea of that it could be a small thing because there's certainly small things that I have done or continue to do. Um, I live in Colombia. Uh, my girlfriend does not speak English pretty much. And my Spanish is 
pretty good now, but we have a ritual where uh, there's one of my books that's been translated into Spanish. And uh, each day that we hang out, uh, I read a page out loud in Spanish. She reads the same page out loud in, in English. And it's just a thing that takes five minutes. And uh, we, mm-hmm. we continue to do it each day that we hang out. And it, 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 uh, it helps, us, helps us learn. Um, so those are a couple of examples. But I think that there is a component of this, this language learning project that you did that is interesting to me and stuck out to me, which is this difference between free recall and repeated review. And it sounds to me like when you were making it a point to not speak in your native language while living in these countries, you were forced to do free recall. And free recall is inherently uncomfortable, right? And so that might be part of why when we hear about a project like that, we think that it sounds painful and awful. So, yeah, I think I, I can talk about a lot of reasons why I think this is the right approach. And, but first, I'll tell you a little story because uh, my friend and I, after we did this project, it was a big year-long project, big moment in our life. Um, uh, one of these TEDx conferences invited us to give a little speech and about language learning. And so we decided, to, you know, we're going to kind of pitch this method, this method that like had so changed our life and so profoundly impacted how we thought about travel and learning and all sorts of things like that that, you know, we were convinced, like we had done this four times now. We were like, no, 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 this works. This is the way to do it. And I remember talking to my friend before we got on stage and I said, you know, people aren't going to do this, right? Like, you know, we're going to tell people and it's like something that we know in our bones is true. And people are going to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of funny. It's a little bit like, um, who's that, uh, who's that Greek, um, that Greek myth about the person who can tell the future, but no one believes him. Uh, We felt a bit like that when it came to language learning that like, we knew the right way to do it. We knew it in our bones. And yet we talk to people and they say, oh yeah, I'm thinking about learning French. And I'm like, well, great. You should do some, you know, some kind of version that's no English rule. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I'd rather do Duolingo (laughs) or something. And you're like, oh my God, this is killing me. And so I think I can talk about sort of why I think this method works. So I'll give you the pitch. Uh, If you're listening to this right now and you've had an interest in learning a language, um, first of all, let me say you don't have to travel and you don't have to do it full time. What matters is that you have some dedicated period or a dedicated situation, let's say with a particular person or a particular chunk of day where you practice this kind of no English approach. Uh, You can scale it down, scale it up. It can be portable wherever you live. Obviously, if you live in a country that speaks the language and you're doing it full time, that will be the fastest approach. But if you can't do that, that's not a reason to ignore this method. But the basic idea is that when you are doing this, first of all, you're doing what you just talked about. You're doing free recall because you have to think of what you want to say and try to recall it in your head. And only later, you may be looking something up in Google Translate or a dictionary or, or what have you, whereas you do a lot of other exercises. So just, define, mm-hmm. just to define free recall and make sure that I understand it, it, it is that you're, you're not getting any clues or cues. You are trying to remember this thing. Yes. Right? And that's different from repeated review, which would be what? Repeated review would be, let's say I give you a vocabulary list in Spanish and you look it over a bunch of times. Like that would be an Mm. example. Or or let's say I'm going to read something over and over again. That's a little bit more tricky with languages because reading in the language that you want to learn 
is a kind of recall exercise because you're trying to recall what those words mean in English or what they mean sort of generally speaking. And to pronounce them correctly. Yeah, yeah, so it is still a recall activity, but it's a different one than trying to go the other direction from your native language or from your thoughts into uh, the language you want to speak. But so free recall is one. But I think an even more important one is that we often forget that languages and indeed all skills that we're trying to learn that that languages are for communication and the skills we're trying to learn are for some purpose. And so sometimes we can fall in this trap of thinking of learning a language as mostly an academic exercise where there are, you know, nouns and verbs and conjugations and grammar and phonetics. And so it's about amassing this body of knowledge (laughs) rather than what it really is about, which is trying to convey what you want to convey to another human being or to, to someone To do else. a thing, to yes. do something. There's a and why. So, yes. Yeah. And so not only is there a motivation component to that because you're learning words because you need to use them to talk to the other person, but also there is a very important component here that you are learning exactly what you need to learn in order to communicate. So I'll give some examples because I think it's kind of funny in some ways that like, For instance, one of the things that we would learn very early on, usually like the first day or two in the languages we're learning, is we learn the word for project. Now, project is not usually considered a very low-level vocabulary item in most languages for, you know, especially if you're learning something like Chinese, where it's nothing like the word project. Uh, You know, it's not Mm. proyecto or something like that. You, you, You have to, you know, you have to learn it. And it's not something that's going to show up in a common word of vocabulary. So why were we learning it? Well, because one of the first words and sentences that we would learn would be, uh, I have a project to not speak in English to learn your language. Like that would be one of the phrases we learned. So, of course, we need to use that word. Another example, when we were in Brazil, uh, we had this brief like Airbnb fiasco where we were temporarily kind of homeless. And we were like, oh, we're like, so we have to go around now this little fishing village in Brazil with our like very terrible Portuguese and which we had done no practice prior to going there, which I don't totally recommend. That was definitely a little bit of a hiccup when we first landed there. But we had like very little Portuguese and we have to walk around this little town um, and basically ask people if, you know, they, they have this, uh, this is a big thing in Brazil where they have these things called pousadas, which are like kind of like a, a home slash motel. Like it's someone's home, but they have like three or four extra rooms that they rent out. And, uh, and it's very common in Latin America. And so we were going around like door to door with all these various posadas and basically asking, you know, I am looking for a place for three months to stay. Like, you know, basically, can, can you rent a place to us? And so we memorize that phrase and we go around door to door and ask people this. Now, this is not something that's going to show up in a language textbook. This is not going to be something that, you know, is on a basic list of flashcards. I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for a, like a, a home for, you know, three months. Which is that's ridiculous not be because that's exactly what you're going to do when you go speak a foreign language anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. So this is just a, an essential principle of this ultra learning process is, is what I call directness, which is this idea that mm. whenever you're learning anything, you should always have at the back of your mind, where am I going to use this? And this is true not only for really practical skills, but even even theoretical knowledge, even like the latest business book you read or you know some article you read on psychology. Keeping this in mind of where is this knowledge going to make contact with reality is so important because often we learn things in a kind of isolated, removed way from the real world. 
And then we can't apply it when we need it. So you spend two, three years learning Spanish in high school, and then you go on a trip to Mexico and you can't remember like the first thing about Spanish. Although you remember weird words, like you remember like watermelon is sandia or something like that, you know? Oh, I don't even know that one. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. You know that the best talent is never looking for a job. So how do you get your job post in front of the best talent if they aren't looking? You go somewhere they're already spending time. You know LinkedIn is a hot social platform for professionals. You heard Robbie Abed talking about it in a recent episode. So what if you could get your job openings in front of the best professionals who are already spending time on LinkedIn? You can do exactly that with LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has the deepest, most up-to-date and insightful data set on professionals. They use that data to match your job opening to qualified professionals, many of whom aren't even actively looking for a new job. LinkedIn will promote your job opening across their platform, targeting the professionals who are the best fit for that job. I think it's brilliant because the best talent isn't actively looking for a job, yet LinkedIn is still able to reach them. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash loveyourwork Again, that's linkedin.com slash loveyourwork to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. But this whole free recall versus repeated review thing, like I want to go back to that too, because um, I think that is part of this sort of motivational block that mm. myself or other people might experience sometimes, which is the free recall if I remember correctly, it's when you're doing free recall, you feel like you're doing terrible. Yeah. But it turns out that when you're doing free recall, you're actually learning much better than when you're doing repeated review. But when you're doing repeated review, you finish and you feel like you you did a good job. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you some of these studies. I'll just recap them here because obviously you're talking about some of the stuff uh, from the book. And I found these studies just fascinating when I first encountered them. So the first study was done by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt. And they've done many, many of these studies. I know we were talking a bit before the call about like the replication crisis and this kind of thing. These are, these are robust studies that have had many, many different people showing these effects. And so the basic study here was that they took students and divide them up into different groups. One of the groups they asked to do repeated review, which is basically you have a text or something like, you know, like something you'd study in a classroom, you got like an essay or something, and you read it over and over and over again. And this is a very typical way of studying. Review in this case was rereading, but, you know, students will do things like they'll get some different colored highlighters and they'll highlight passages or they'll, they'll take what they read in one thing and they'll transcribe it somewhere else or they'll, you know, just look over their notes again and again and again. This is a very common studying tactic. Another group, they got to do free recall, which is you read the text once, you close it, and then while the book is closed, you try to remember everything that you can recall from that text. And it's called free recall, as we mentioned, because there aren't any questions or prompts. So it's not like, you know, fill in the blanks or something like that. You, you just have to try to recall everything you can. And right after they did this, they asked the students, how well did they learn the information? And those who did repeated review gave themselves the highest scores. They said, oh, I know this. Like I've been looking it over and over and over again. I really know it. Whereas those who did free recall gave themselves poor scores. They said, wow, that was really difficult. I didn't remember any of that. But when they test them, it flips. So those who do free recall actually score better on tests than those who do repeated review. So 
the question kind of asked by the study office is why do we get misled? Why do we think we know something when we don't? And it actually has a very interesting and sort of deep explanation in our brain. And it's just that our brains don't actually have the ability. We don't have the ability to introspect and figure out how well we'll remember something later. That's just not an ability we possess as humans. Oh, yeah. So it's like, instead, oh, I don't need to write this down right now because yeah. I, I, I've got it. And then, of course, we don't have you it. forget it. Like, yeah, just tell me your phone number. I'll remember it. <laughs> so instead, we have to use something else. So what what we tend to use is they say that we, we base our judgments of learning or our sense of how much we've learned something on how fluently we process it. So meaning, how easy did this feel for us? Mm -hmm. And if you're doing repeated review, it feels easier and easier and easier. And so your brain takes that as a sign, which often in many other cases, it is a good sign that you know something. When you read it and you say, oh yeah, I totally know this, I understand this, that's usually a good sign. However, free recall tricks us because free recall is quite hard. And because it's quite hard, you don't process it fluently and you give yourself sort of a bad self-assessment because you're like, oh, wow, I didn't remember anything. But what you're doing when you're practicing free recall is the very thing you need to do to strengthen those memories. So the best example I can give of, of this sort of uh, fluency of processing or this sort of little kind of quirk of our psychology uh, messing up our ability to think about what we're remembering is think about the last time you were at a party and someone introduced themselves and said, oh, hi, my name is Dave. And in your head, you were like, Dave, that's a normal name. I'll remember that. Yeah. And then three seconds later, you're like, oh, crap, what was Don. that guy's name again? Is it Mike? Donald, maybe? I, I don't know. It was a normal name, you know? And yeah. so so this is, this is a, a sort of an area where we're tricked because what our brain is doing is it's taking the task of how well did you remember this and substituting it for... How easy does this feel? And those are not necessarily the same thing. And so there's another there's another study, which I think is, is related to this and I think is very relevant to your point of why don't people do this? And they asked participants, in the first study, participants were just told how to study. They didn't get a chance to choose. But in this study, they were asked to choose how they would like to study it. And what they found is that poor performing students tend to pick review. They don't feel ready to do kind of free recall or, or that kind of practice. It's uncomfortable. Testing. Yeah. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. And you feel like, no, no, no. Well, I don't know anything. I have to review the material first before I do that. And it's funny because I've talked to students, I've talked to people who have said that, you know, they're, they're memorizing a speech they have to give on stage. And I'm saying, well, why are you just reading the flashcards? Why aren't you like trying to, you know, practice the speech? And they're like, well, I don't know it yet. I have to keep reviewing it. And the funny thing is that through experimental intervention, if you force them to do recall, they will perform better. So it definitely seems to be the case that we avoid the more effective technique because it's frustrating, because it makes us feel worse about ourselves, because it's a bit more difficult. And that's, of course, a recurring theme of, of my book. Well, this is something that I experienced when I started giving speeches mm -hmm. uh, was that I eventually started to rehearse it out loud, you know, to myself, say it out loud. And I felt really, really weird, really strange doing it. And, but it, it made me realize like, oh, I've been doing this wrong for so long. For the longest time, I would like, you know, maybe write down some bullet points and uh, maybe make some, some cards or something that I might even bring up with me. And then you get up there and you try to say it, but you haven't said it. You haven't, you haven't, you haven't experienced or carve that neural pathway. Actually, perfect example, when I was learning uh, bachata, it's a style mm -hmm. of dance, very similar to salsa. We'll just say salsa for simplicity's <laughs> sake. Yeah. We would go to class and they would teach us a combination. 
Mm-hmm. And we would do the combination over and over again. It's like, okay, do this move and then that one and then this one until we, we've got it. We're doing it with, we're rotating. We're going with every single partner in the class. We have it completely down. Then you go out dancing and you go on the dance floor and you ask somebody who to dance who's not in your class. <laughs> what happens? You don't remember any of it. Yeah. You can't remember any of it. So when I stopped going to class and when I started trying to replicate or at least get in touch with what is the neural pathway that I'm using, not to memorize it and remember it in class, but what's the neural pathway that I'm using when I'm listening to the music and I'm on the dance floor and I'm connected with the partner and I need to express the song through some dance move. When I started thinking about that, that's when I suddenly started getting a lot better, even though I had completely stopped taking classes. Is that kind mm-hmm. of the similar fen- a similar phenomenon? So I think you're right. I think this is actually very related to uh, this principle of directness they were talking about, because the classroom environment where you are being taught some choreography, your partner, I'm like, I'm assuming you're a lead. So your follow yeah, would yeah. also have the same choreography as you do. And you work through it again and again and again. And there's nothing wrong with that as a learning step. But the problem is that a lot of, uh, you know, dance schools gloss over the fact that they've only taught you part of what you need to do to be successful executing this in real life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you need to do as a lead with the follow is you need to be able to communicate the dance moves that you learn. So not merely just remembering them on your own, but you need to be able to communicate those to your partner um, without telling them, okay, now yeah. I'm going to spin you this way. And so this can often be a challenge as well, because uh, in the classroom, the follow know, know what you're trying to do. So if you don't yeah. communicate it very well, they still do the right move because, well, they're also trying to do it. Whereas you go to the dance floor and you do it wrong and they have no idea what you're trying to say to them sort of in a way with your body. And so I think a similar thing can happen when we're talking about learning languages that you learn, let's say, a set phrase or, you know, some simple dialogue in the classroom. And then you go out to real life and, you know, in the in the classroom, maybe you learned in Spanish like "donde está el baño," and the person you were talking to would say like "aquí" or something like that. And then you go into real world, and then they're like uh, "blah blah 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 blah," and you're sort of like, "Oh wait, I don't know anything because this person didn't respond in the way that I expected." And so, I think one of the main lessons here, in addition to this sort of free recall, in addition to this, you know, context specific memory, is also this idea that you want to be doing something that's at least a kernel of the real situation that you're in very early on, or you can be in this sort of dance environment where you keep taking lessons and you keep going to class and you keep learning more choreography. And yet you just don't feel better when you actually go to the dance socials because you've been missing this part the whole time. Similarly, if you keep taking language classes or keep working on Duolingo and you're missing some of the key points that you actually need to master to be able to be proficient in a real situation. So, yeah, part of it is the context is that Mm -hmm. this, you know, it's like almost, I swear I could feel it in my mind, the (laughs) difference between what it felt like to almost spontaneously do a dance move because the song is inspiring me to do so versus like just remembering and and going through the motions in class. And then on top of it, there was that component of, of being able to, uh, to lead it because you're in a different context. You're dealing with somebody who, who doesn't uh, necessarily know it. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's also, I I guess that that brings us a little bit to this idea of breaking down a skill into component parts, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
I was a very avid golfer younger uh, when I was younger. And lately, now when I get a chance, I've been trying to apply the things that I learned to being better at golf when I get a chance, which I, is not very often. But it, it made me realize that there's all these component parts that I had glossed over before that, you know, putting or your putting is one component of golf, but putting itself has all these component parts to it. There is getting the distance right. There is uh, having a, a good rhythm to, to the putting stroke. There is reading the green. Uh, there's all these component parts and each of those component parts you can isolate and come up with some sort of an exercise through which to practice that component part. So could you talk a little bit about this breaking down of things and coming up with a way to work on just that one little micro skill? Absolutely. So many of the things that we want to get good at are not single unitary things. They're really very complicated things and involve many, many different things going on. So again, using my favorite example of learning a language, if you're learning a language, you have pronunciation, you have vocabulary, you have your pitch, you have the words you use, you have grammar, you have conjugation, like you have all these little components that are all sort of happening simultaneously. And so the challenge is that very often when you are working on something, if it is difficult, it's a little bit like you have to do it while juggling everything else, right? So, you know, if you can imagine, all right, I'm doing this difficult task and I also have to work on this other thing, but, you know, 90% of my mind is just trying to get through these other components. It can be very difficult to improve. And so if we're talking about, you know, golfing in a golf game, I mean, you're trying to have a low score. You're trying to deal with the wind conditions. You're trying to deal with the fact that, well, you've got to drive here and then you got to chip out of the, you know, sand trap over here and then you got to get onto the green and then you got to do this and this and this. And so there's a lot of different things going on. So at some level, you will definitely get better just by playing golf and you will be getting better and better and better to a point. And so the research on expertise, which was sort of initiated by uh, K. Anders Ericsson, who was kind of made famous for the 10,000 hour rule in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, mm -hmm. um, his basic idea is that these plateaus in skill are extremely common, that once you reach a level of, I'll call it adequacy with a skill, you tend not to get that much better, even though you might be putting in huge amount of practice. So kind of contra the 10,000 hour rule, it's very often the case that you learned a lot in maybe the first hundred hours, and then maybe the next, you know, thousand, two thousand hours, you don't actually make much improvement at all. So the people who think, oh yeah, you just got to put in a lot of time or maybe making a serious mistake, that his idea was not that it requires, you know, 10,000 hours of any practice, but that it required 10,000 hours of what he called deliberate practice, which was really this sort of process of, okay, let's take this big, complicated skill I'm working on and really nail this very small component. And so it could be something like, I want to be really good at, uh, you know, being able to you know, on a flat green, let's say that doesn't have anything, I want to be able to putt it exactly the distance I want it to go. And that's one component of putting is it knowing, okay, without gravity, without extra stuff, I just want to make sure, okay, how can I putt it so it'll go 10 feet or five feet or, or what have you. And that's a, that's a component skill. And so there's many, many skills that you could all practice separately. And the reason that, you know, he was arguing, in fact, in favor of this 10,000 hour rule is that to be, you know, at the level of Tiger Woods or, you know, an elite athlete or pianist or surgeon or things like this, it just takes a long time to master all of these little component skills. However, I think the lesson for amateurs or lessons for people who want to get better is that, you know, once you've been doing it for a little while, you tend to stagnate unless you sort of go out of your way to deliberately improve it using these kinds of methods. Mm. Well, 
and it seems like the reason why we stagnate, the reason why we plateau mm-hmm. is because then it becomes enjoyable, right? Like the same mechanism that makes me think, no, I don't want to make a commitment to not speak my native language mm-hmm. makes me say, I don't really want to go do this deliberate practice because it's not fun and it's painful. And I prefer to not do that because then then it's an enjoyable. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, is that part of it? So I think uh, you definitely echo the sentiment of, of Erickson and he's definitely sort of a believer that this deliberate practice is sort of uh, difficult and that it involves a kind of sort of mental discipline and effort. And um, he has been somewhat critical of another popular psychologist and researcher, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is the sort of mm, founder of this idea flow. of flow. And so they've had actually a little bit of an ongoing debate where Csikszentmihalyi believes that flow is like, it's, it's, it's good for all things. That's sort of his stance on it, that it's key to creativity and success and mastery. And Erickson believes that because deliberate practice is, in his words, deliberate, it's conscious and it's overriding the automatic behaviors then it's not really suitable for flow. My own perspective is somewhat, somewhat in between these two. I think that mastery can be a really enjoyable process, that I think breaking down and getting good at things can be very satisfying. If, if let's say there was something you were struggling with and now you're able to perform at a new level and you're actually able to overcome some of your weaknesses and difficulties, this can be quite enjoyable and rewarding. So I don't want to give the impression that the only reason that you don't master things is just because mastery is just drudgery and you can't mm-hmm. do it. But I don't think it's automatic. So I do agree with him there. And I do think that if you just have the idea, oh, well, I'll just do it a lot. I mean, it'll get you to a point. And so certainly for a lot of skills where the environment is more demanding than your ability level, you will rise up to that challenge. So if, you know, like you're living in another country that speaks another language, you don't have a lot of people that speak to you in English, your linguistic abilities will probably continue to rise because you're getting constant situations where what your current linguistic abilities are, they're not adequate. However, that's not necessarily going to take you to the level where you're a brilliant public speaker or you are a novelist in that language because the environment doesn't demand that of you. And so similarly, even in our kind of, you know, hobbyist environments or in our careers or in our work, it's very often the case that what we're doing right now is good enough. Now, maybe it's not good enough for you to be a top performer. Maybe it's not good enough for you to be the best in your field, to be the top programmer, to be the best manager, to, you know, have your company, you know, be a unicorn. Like maybe it's not at that level, but maybe your environment is not pushing you in that direction. And so I think, yeah, the definitely the research behind deliberate practice shows that while I think mastery is uh, often it can be enjoyable if you have the right attitude about it and if you are thinking about it the right way. I don't think it's automatic. I think it is mm-hmm. something that requires a special attention and a, and a special, you know, you have to really care about being the best at your craft and, and really improving it constantly rather than just, ah, eh, well, I'll just do whatever I want, right? Yeah, I feel like flow is kind of overrated. Uh, I think I'm with, <laughs> uh, with Erickson on that. I mean, flow is wonderful, but if I understand correctly, and I'm not a scientist mm-hmm. in this, but I believe that it's, you know, you can't be in flow all the time. Like it's neurochemically impossible or improbable because of the amount of norepinephrine that the flow state involves. I, I believe I remember Stephen Kotler saying that. So uh, I guess that needs to be verified. So, but also, I don't know, maybe maybe when I'm talking about like the, the painful aspect of doing this practice, it's not like, it's like a, a type of pain that's that is satisfying in a way. Like it's uncomfortable, but 
it's satisfying to, I guess, to, to know that you are improving, even though, even though it feels like, like you're, you're really not. And I personally am somebody who tries to have a balance of those moments along with some, some other moments that are kind of effortless. And I, and I wonder if you, this is anything you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when I talked about, like when I used to practice speeches, mm-hmm. uh, I would rehearse the entire speech out loud and record it on a voice memo on my phone. And then I would just listen to it over and over again, like while I'm grocery shopping, while I'm walking, while I'm on the train. And then eventually, like, it would just sort of sink in. And there would be this sort of dissonance that I would be able to hear where, oh, that that part's not quite right. And I guess it kind of ties into the dancing thing as well, where, yes, when I'm on the dance floor, it was better for me to listen for that feeling in my brain of being able to recall the the dance move, the the right one in that moment and, and carve that neural pathway. But at the same time, I couldn't have done that without kind of the rote memorization that came along before that. That was sort of a foundational element. Is there a way that you separate something like these sort of automatic, rote, repetitive things from other parts of of learning something? So I think that what we're talking about when we talk about so I have this I have this view that habits and learning are actually at like kind of a fundamental level, sort of the same thing. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that what is it to have a habit? A habit means that given some cues from the environment, some sort of pattern of neuronal firing causes you to act in a way that is consistent with what you've done in the past or with some sort of habit you condition. And learning is somewhat similar, is that there's some kind of cue or prompt from the environment, except in this time, you're maybe activating knowledge, and then that's allowing you to make a decision that you kind of know how to do. So when you're driving a car, it, there's something about driving a car that's very similar to acquiring a habit, that it's just that, whereas when we talk about habits, sort of casually speaking, we're typically talking about very simple habits, like, oh, I have a habit of going to the gym every day, which doesn't have a lot of like moving parts. Although probably a little bit more complexity than we're willing to admit, because you have to think about like, well, what do you do if you're sick? And like, what happens if, you know, the gym's closed or all these sorts of things? So there's little contingencies. But for the most part, when we talk about habits, we're talking about simple stuff. Whereas when we're talking about skills or we're talking about knowledge, we're talking about more complicated things like driving a car. People don't usually think of driving a car as a habit because there's so many things going on when you're driving a car. You have to push the gas pedal and turn the steering wheel and watch the signals and know the rules of the road. And, and there's all these sorts of things you got to navigate all going on at the same time. But I think that that's just a spectrum that we're really talking about the same things. And so when we're talking about what you were saying about the difference between sort of automatic learning and also this kind of, you know, deliberate practice and this mastery and, and what we're talking about where it's sort of effortful and conscious is that the act of learning in a real sense, the act of learning, in my opinion, is the act of sort of overriding whatever the default response is. So whatever you're kind of conditioned to do, it is overriding it. Now, often you don't have something very strongly conditioned when you've learned something. So if you don't know any Spanish and someone says something in Spanish to you, you don't really have a very strongly conditioned pattern in your brain that you're trying to replace. Whereas when you're trying to change habits, 
it's very often the case that you're trying to override a bad habit. So, you know, normally you would eat that second pint of ice cream, but now you're trying not to. Um, whereas when you're learning often, it's kind of, you know, it's not clear what your, what your pattern is right now that you're overriding. However, I think very often we can view the lens of mastery through this same lens of habits, whereas what you're trying to do is maybe sort of upgrade a habit. So you have some sort of habit or pattern of thinking that works all right, but you have some inclination that, well, it's causing me problems in this way. So I need to have a more nuanced habit. So instead of just doing A as the response to every situation, I'm going to do A sometimes and I'm going to do B other times. Or maybe it's something that you're saying, you know what, A is is not really the best way of doing it. So I'm going to always do B and I'm going to replace that. So I call this process unlearning, but I think it's very similar to changing one's habits. And the the connection with deliberateness and, and conscious effort is clear because just in the same way that if your habits right now are kind of bad, that, you know, every time, you know, you have a break, you smoke a cigarette, that's an automatic behavior. And so to change your habits, you're trying to rewrite your brain so that that isn't the first thing that comes up when you have a break. And so similarly with learning and mastery, often a lot of what you're doing is, oh, I've learned something. I have something. Maybe it's just sort of a sort of an intuition. Maybe it's some beliefs I have from something in the past. Maybe it's a skill that worked all right in the beginning, and now I'm trying to do it a different way. So with sports, this is very often the case. You know, maybe you you started playing tennis casually, and you're not holding the racket right. And someone tells you, ah, oh, you got to hold the racket like this. And you're like, well, but now this doesn't work as well. It's not as comfortable for me. So I have to like actively override my sort of mm-hmm. instinct to hold it a different way. That's interesting to think of learning as like habits, because like you were saying with driving, you know, a habit is like a, a, a trigger and then a response and then something that uh, you know, causes that to happen again. So if you're driving, you you feel the steering wheel in a certain way and and then you do a behavior such as grasping it or turning it. And there's a ton of those little things happening all the time when you're doing that. Same thing with with uh, dancing, same thing with learning a language. So uh, is that kind of understanding of this relationship between habits and learning? Uh, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And I, I think we all have the experience of, you know, driving a car when we've driven a car for a while and just completely losing the sensation that we're even thinking about driving. Like you're in a conversation with someone or you're daydreaming and you're like, how'd I get home, right? <laughs> Obviously you were <laughs> yeah. following the traffic rules or you would have been in an accident, but it's just the case that all of those little skills are so automatic that they don't require a lot of conscious thought. However, if you're going to become a race car driver, now you maybe have to start uh-huh. overriding some of your habits from driving your minivan around town. Yes, you would have to, yeah, you'd have to get it all, you'd have to break down the components and really drill each mm-hmm. of those. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I love talking about learning, learning about learning. Um, I think people should really buy your book. It's amazing. Ultra learning, ultra learning, master hard skills, outsmart the competition and accelerate your career. Where else can people get more of you, Scott H. Young? <laughs> so they can go to scotthyoung.com, S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And there I have links to the book, uh, including Audible, where I'm narrating it. So if you aren't tired of hearing my voice after this podcast episode, you can keep listening to the book and I can talk about the other principles of learning and how it can apply to master skills yourself. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars, put your money where your mind is, and keep Love Your Work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash K-A, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially, and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsor Paula Spriggs, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pinkovichis. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.